Hello and welcome to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by Nuoutra, the innovative medical nutrition company dedicated to improving patients' lives through specialised and affordable supplements. My name is Corinne Toyne and I'm a registered dietitian and marketing specialist at HRS Communications. We invite you to drop into the Dietitian Cafe as we discuss the latest nutrition trends, topics and research. Every month, two episodes are released. One is an interview with a featured guest and the other a debate highlighting a hot topic in the world of nutrition and dietetics. However, before I start, can I ask you a huge favour? If you enjoy the Dietitian Cafe podcast, we'd be super grateful if you could press that follow button. More subscribers means more exciting guests and more interesting conversations for you, our listeners. Thank you. In today's debate episode, we'll be discussing ultra-processed foods. Ultra-processed foods, otherwise coined as UPFs, are a hot topic of conversation at the moment, not only in the nutrition world, but also in the media. Everything from their definition to whether we should be cutting them out seems to be up for debate. So, following the publication of the British Nutrition Foundation's position statement and the Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition, otherwise known as SACIM's, position statement on processed foods and health, we're taking some time to dig into this topic with two experts. So, without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome the BNF's Nutrition Communications Manager, Bridget Benalan, and Registered Dietitian, Dr. Dwayne Miller. It's great to have you both with us. Thank you for joining me. So, before we get started, I'll hand over to you to introduce yourself. Bridget, let's come to you first, please. So, I'm Bridget Benalam. I originally studied biochemistry, which is probably longer ago than I care to remember now, and then studied human nutrition. I originally joined the Food Standards Agency after that for a, um, a sh- fairly short period. And then I joined the British Nutrition Foundation in 2006. So I've been here for quite some time. And I've been working, my role has uh, moved from a science role more towards a communications role over the time that I've been at the British Nutrition Foundation. And I've been uh, in the uh, nutrition communications manager role since 2016. Um, So the key thing we're trying to do is communicate evidence-based nutrition scientists. And I'm sure I don't need to tell your listeners, there's lots and lots of information and misinformation about nutrition and health out there. So our main aim is to get the evidence-based, science-based information out there to as many people as we can. Yeah, and I'm, I'm Dwayne Miller. I'm a registered dietitian. I work at Aston University with many hats on. Um, my main one is in the medical school where I look after student well-being, but also lead on nutrition and evidence-based medicine. I've got a wider role within the College of Health and Life Sciences, the Associate Dean for Public Engagement, engaging with the media, business and the local community. My background is in clinical dietetics, working to support people living with diabetes, and I moved into medical education here at Aston. I've got a keen interest in sort of understanding the science behind health claims, particularly nutrition, and how they can help people to make informed decisions about well-being, as well as an interest in how the media communicates things and often loses the nuance, and particularly in topics around health, and how that can lead to confusion and misinformation. I'm also a member of the BNF Scientific Committee who reviewed the recent uh, BNF uh, position statement on ultra-processed foods and contributed to their paper looking at how we can talk about health, the issue of ultra-processed foods, without stigmatising people, particularly those on lower incomes. Thank you. Looks like we have a really exciting conversation ahead of us. So let's get started with a few quick-fire questions to get to know you both a little better. Let's go to you, Bridget, first. What are you reading at the moment? 
So I'm reading a brilliant book, which is actually by my brilliant friend who grew up, I grew up with. It's called Bliss and Blunder, and it's a retelling of the King Arthur myth for the modern day. So King Arthur is a, a tech uh, guru and his wife is an Insta influencer and it's it's brilliant. So, yeah, I, I thoroughly recommend that. Sounds good. And what about you, Dwayne? It's a book called Fabulosa, which is an odd book. It's actually the history of the language of Polari, which is a secret gay language which grew up in London from various different criminal languages and immigrant languages as a way of hiding. But also a lot of that's in uh, in modern media and comedy as well, the language are used. So it's interesting on how language evolves over time. I love a good book. And just on that, are you a Kindle person or are you a, a sort of paper version when it comes to books? Paper. <laughs> or even audio. <laughs> mm, nice. Yeah, a bit of both. I like an audio book too, you know, when you're sort of stretched for time to to actually do the proper reading. Yes, yes, me too. And the next question, and this is a tough one, pizza or pasta? What about you, Dwayne? Yeah, it's got to be homemade pizza. I make my own sourdough and I've got my own little oven. So they go wrong quite often, but when it goes right, they're really good. <laughs> Gosh, I've got pizza oven envy now, but I'm going to go for pasta. I think there's just so many, so many different things you can do with it. Good stuff. Lovely. And Bridget, what is your dream holiday destination? Oh, at the moment, Morocco. I went there a really long, I went there when I was 17, which is a really long time ago now, sadly. Um, And I would love to go back. It's always been a kind of magical destination in my mind. So yeah, that's my top of my list at the moment. And you, Dwayne? Probably the very north, the Bay of Islands in New Zealand. My brother-in-law lives there and he's got a brewery and also has pizza. You can probably see why I want to go back there to a subtropical place where there's lots of nice water, sailing boats, pizza and beer. Gorgeous. Sounds amazing. So moving on to the episode questions. It's great to have you both here to talk about such a hot topic. And before we dive into the real nitty gritty, it would be good to set the scene a little. I think we can agree that when we hear the term process, it often brings about it negative connotations. But is all food processing negative? Bridget, can we come to you for this one, please? So a lot of the food that we eat is processed to some degree. And, you know, food processing is something that has probably been done for thousands of years in in different ways. So often about preservation, you know, obviously some things that we we can't eat in their raw state, they have to be processed to make them safe and edible. It's about palatability, shelf life. But of course, the debate that's happening at the moment is very much around industrial processing. And, you know, there's there's very different schools of thought about this. There's some people for whom industrial processing is is the root of all evil and others where, you know, we can say, well, it's delivered us a safe um, affordable food supply, which is something that we take for granted now, but 50 years ago wasn't necessarily the case. So there's a lot of different views about it. Like you say, it has negative connotations, but there's a lot of different ways that food can be processed. We process foods ourselves in our homes, the foods that we eat when we go out to eat are processed to some degree. So I guess it's probably all about the 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 nuance and how how we view different kinds of processing and who's doing it as well. Okay, thank you. Dwayne, there's been a lot of hype and media attention surrounding UPFs or ultra-processed foods. What does the term ultra-processed actually mean and how do these foods differ to processed foods? I think one of the problems is we don't have an international standard agreed definition of ultra-processed foods. 
we have a commonly used criteria, and we'll probably go on to explore that and what that actually means in detail in a moment. But there are a whole range of definitions. I think what most people think when we talk about the media and a lot of the books that have been written about it, and to some extent the literature and the research, is food that cannot be made in the home use ingredients that you wouldn't normally buy from a shop. So this could be things like modified starches. It could be certain emulsifiers, and that's where it gets slightly complicated because you can get emulsifiers from egg yolk, which is normally what you use to mayonnaise, so that would be a processed food. But if you use something called polysorbate 80, which is a, a different sort of chemically produced uh, emulsifier, that would be deemed ultra processed. So... There's nuance in there and it gets very complicated very quickly. I think the main problem is there's not one international definition. There's a range of them and just some have become more popular and more used than others. Mm -hmm. So where does the concept of ultra processed foods actually originate? See, that, that's again a question for debate. You know, the, the most recent one has come from the Nova Group in, in Brazil. And it came from Brazilian food guidelines that encourage people to eat with others, can't disagree with that, be more involved in buying food, preparing food, and sort of going to the market and consuming more fresh or minimally processed food as possible. Again, there's no question there. And then this concept of ultra-processed food came out. But if we're being honest, you know, urbanization with the Industrial Revolution probably brought it in, and it's just grown and changed as a, our food system and our society has changed over the past 200 years. So the idea of processed food in our food supply is not new. It came with cities. It's just changed and adapted. And we have a very different food environment now to what we had 50, 100, 150 years ago. Okay. So Bridget, why now? Why is there so much noise around UPFs at this current moment in time? So probably different things going on. So there's more and more published research on ultra-processed foods and linking ultra-processed foods to the negative health outcomes. And that spans a whole range of different outcomes from heart health to mortality, to cancer, to dementia. And those ine inevitably hit the headlines too. So we'll see headlines in our newspapers around ultra-processed foods. And there's also a lot of popular discussion. So a number of books have come out about ultra-processed foods and health, TV documentaries, so it's a sort of snowball effect, I think, with all of these different things coming into play, stimulating the discussion, social media, in the media, through books. Um, and it's something that we're increasingly seeing. Um, and I think probably something that's becoming more and more familiar to consumers as well. Mm -hmm. OK, thank you. So there are different classification systems for UPFs, which the SACN have evaluated in their recent statement on processed foods and health. The NOVA classification system seems to have come out on top. Duane, can you briefly explain what the NOVA classification system is and the benefits of using it? Um, I'll start with the benefit. It's simple. Then it goes to what Bridget was saying about the research. It's a simple four-step category. And one of them is kind of something you won't really count because that's food ingredients, which is NOVA category two, which is really easy to apply to a data set. So you've got a data set from 100,000 people, say the one in France, Nutrient Sante, or, or sort of the Biobank one in the UK, half a million. You can just easily apply it, then pick your outcome and see if there's a correlation or an association. So that's the benefit of using it. It's simple. If you look at what the categories are, I've already mentioned two, which is the food ingredients. Category one is unprocessed or minimum processed foods. They're kind of the healthy, fresh stuff we all know we should probably eat more of, but possibly don't. 
Then you've got the other two, which is processed food, which is food made from those minimally processed and unprocessed ingredients, which is most home cooking or most freshly prepared food, or some frozen and, and some some meals that have been prepackaged. You need to acknowledge that. And then you have ultra processed foods. They're the ones typically made out of home using ingredients that come from that ingredient category have been modified. So they're the ultra processed one. So it's a simple three category. And because it's simple, it's not perfect. And I think that's the thing we need to acknowledge. It will misclassify some foods and that could lead to confusion or stigma around some foods. And also because we're living in a, a time when cost of living is an issue, the cheaper foods of the longer shelf life will tend to be more likely to be ultra processed. So there we have people who have the, the power and the advocacy to actually afford food, to be able to eat more of the minimally processed foods, the healthier foods, you could say, and other people because of the risk of wasting and trying new foods, not want to risk wasting them, may go for ultra processed foods just because that's a way of keeping tummies full. It's a very complicated issue. So that's the Nova classification, simple, easy to apply. And that's why it's grown quite rapidly through our research. And that's informing the media messages, as Bridget was saying. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Jane, you touched on this um, briefly, but Bridget, a number of organizations have identified there are some limitations to this definition. So I wonder whether you could explain the different perspectives here. Yes. Yeah. I guess broadly, there are sort of two camps that, the proponents of um, ultra-processed food as a category and perhaps specifically the NOVA definition are very much of the belief that it's food processing that is the problem. You know, we've had a long time focusing on nutrients and different nutrients and their impact on health, but their position is processing is the uh, specifically industrial processing is the problem. Um, and, you know, that can get quite tricky. We need to pin down exactly what the mechanisms are, but broadly speaking, it's all about, from, from that perspective, it's all about industrial processing, food industry is a bad thing. It's pushing foods that are bad for our health, um, and that is causing all the ill health that we're seeing. I guess on the other side, uh, it's the idea that, you know, we've got lots and lots of evidence around nutrients and their impact on health. So obviously things like salt and sugar, that will be no news to, to your listeners who are already well aware of that. Um, and I think the issue that a lot of us in nutrition see with the debate around ultra processed food is it does exclude any consideration of nutrients. You know, we've got lots of good evidence around the relationships between nutrients and health. Um, and I think it's uh, ultra processed foods brings up some really interesting additional things I think we need to think about, such as, you know, palatability and texture um, that come with processing. But I think if we just exclude all the, all the things that we know about um, from a nutrition science point of view, I, I don't believe that's actually helpful. Um, I guess the other thing, as Dwayne's already mentioned, is that there's there can be a lot of grey areas in terms of what's ultra-processed and what's not. And of course, the category for the ultra-processed foods is essentially treated as one thing when actually it includes thousands of foods with very very different nutrient profiles so you know you might have a deep pan meat feast pizza that would be ultra processed but so would a three bean soup that's in a plastic pot because you know it's been made despite what the ingredients may be it's in a plastic pot it's made by the food industry there for its ultra process but of course you know it's it's not rocket science to understand that those two things are going to have potentially very different impacts on health if they're things that we eat regularly um so 
it's it's a really tricky one there's there's lots of debate there are these different perspectives and i think we need to dig into the science and we need to understand more about the mechanisms of why these are so why we're seeing these associations in the research but you know you can't do that in a newspaper headline and that's where a lot of the challenges come mm, yeah definitely i think the media can obviously be great for raising awareness of important issues, but sometimes it can be, you know, really counterproductive when the messages are really confusing and then you end up leaving, you know, the end uh, general public and consumer just feeling really misled about what they should be doing. And it's it's a issue that happens time and time again in nutrition. Um, so thinking about the bigger picture then, um, Sacken's review summarised the current research on processed food and health. What does the research say about the link between UPFs and poor health outcomes, Dwayne? Well, <laughs> a good, good question. If we look at this, a lot of been sort of um, put out as abstracts from conferences, some of it's full papers. Yeah, we, we've got papers that suggest there's a, a link between cardiovascular disease and intake of ultra-processed foods. That's the, it's an association. It's not causal because these are big populations. And there's a recent meta-analysis. It was only a conference paper, so we don't have the detail. But interestingly, those with the highest intake of ultra-processed foods have the highest rates of cardiovascular disease and stroke. But those on the lowest intake didn't have the lowest risks. It was a J-shaped curve. So it could be something about, uh, you know, the, the idea that some food manufacturing allows us to safely live in cities and have a food supply. It's the extreme intake of foods that are less healthy for us, you know, ones that are also high in fat, salt, and sugar. You know, they've got a low fiber in content. You know, there's those sort of complicated factors in there, which could mean it's not quite as simple as ultra-processed foods. There are ones linked to sort of mental health. There's also a recent one trying to link ultra-processed foods or some ultra-processed foods. Again, it's not always clear to um, the idea of food being addiction. And again, addiction and food and the triggering of the brain senses is a very complicated issue. And it's very different to a um, drug-related addiction rather than a learned behavior and a pleasure response. So there's a lot of things that need picking out there. Um, and sort of there are links also between ultra-processed foods and some cancers, but again, it's not all. So we, we're seeing lots of data going in, but only some findings coming out and being clear and being almost a linear. So as you go one step of intake of ultra-processed food, that risk increases. It's not clear-cut. So there's other things in there. You know, we do know that a diet that's less healthy, and Bridget's already said that very nicely, one that's low in fruit and vegetables, low in fiber, low in vitamins and minerals, but high in the fat, salt, and sugar is not good for us. The ultra-processed foods, it could be a few other things because these studies do control on, on the large for either diet scores or other dietary factors, but they don't. you can't control for all of them. And I think that's a problem. You know, Is it the processing that's the issue, or is it this a marker of a poor dietary quality and a less than ideal dietary pattern. And that's the thing that's very hard to pick out. Mm, okay. So so given these limitations then, how useful is the research, Dwayne? Can we wholeheartedly rely on it or do we need to take it with a pinch of salt? Um, we probably need to have less salt because that's part of the problem with ultra-processed food. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if we're being sensible about it, we need to acknowledge there's a large growth in this research base. And is that for improvement in public understanding and scientific understanding of public health? Or is it academics publishing because that's what they're driven to do, because that's the nature of universities? 
So just because there's lots of evidence, it doesn't mean it's good. Mm. That's the thing I think we need to remember. Then we need to look at, is this actually mechanistically looking at it? We have one intervention study, which was small, from Kevin Hall's group in America. We need more studies looking at the effective change in the matrix of food. Yeah, if you look at Arn Astrup, he's argued that you know proteins may not be an issue because we modify proteins less, but it's the adding the fat in to a food where you've got a low fiber content, or it's the carbohydrates which are modified, which makes them more rapidly available. So the energy is more rapidly available. And I mentioned about that paper about sort of driving food cues and driving desirability. We've known for a long time that foods high in fat and sugar over-regulate our ability to distinguish between fat and sugar intake. You know, that that was done in, in sort of Washington uh, a long time ago, and that's why we know that both rats and humans love donuts. You know, these things are not a surprise, but we need to be clear that, you know, we have a problem in Western culture that our food system is not supporting human and planetary health. I think we can agree on that. And that's independent of ultra-processed foods. Ultra-processed foods is one way of classifying it, you know, foods high in fat and salt and sugar or another, they mainly get the issue, but by going for one or the other without thinking, what are we replacing these or what are we eating that's less healthy and how do we replace them with more healthy foods? We're missing the, the point. And I think what we're losing in this debate is we're focusing on the ultra-processed foods. We need to be focusing on the, the fresh and minimally processed foods and how we can make them more desirable more affordable and available. So people can make healthier choices. And we're spending too much time focusing on the ultra processed bit or the foods high in fat, salt and sugar, which we know that there's an overlap. We mm. need to focus on what we should be eating more and how to do it. And we're focusing on trying to you know, debate about which is the least healthy bits when really there's not much difference between the two classifications in most cases. Okay, thank you for explaining that. I think you're so right some of these um some more simplistic messages which have stayed true for years and uh, get lost in the complexities of these newer kind of you know bits of research but you're right i think we do need to be framing it in a much more positive way and that actually leads me on really nicely to my next question when we're thinking about consumers and how um, patients as well view these nutritional topics so let's obviously think about upfs and how consumers and patients view those bridget there's currently debate about UPFs in the media and do you think that that's a debate that consumers should be engaged with or is it a topic that only healthcare professionals and academics should be debating well i mean i think the issues the scientific issues the classification issues the research issues they're tricky and they're very um they can get very complicated and nuanced and that's very difficult to get into in a consumer piece in a newspaper or online wherever that may be but I think in a way, consumers have no choice but to be drawn in because there's just so much going on about it. There's so many headlines, so much on TV, some very high profile people talking about it. Um, so that gives us a real challenge when it comes to communication and how do you actually, you know, you don't want to communicate just for the sake of it. You want to actually make an impact on people and we, you want to encourage behavior change that supports better health. Uh, is this doing that? It's a tricky one. You know, we know from surveys that the things that people generally think of as ultra processed are things like ready meals and burgers and things like that. And, you know, if people if what people take from this debate is, oh, I'm going to try and eat fewer burgers and cook for myself a bit more, then that's probably a good thing. But I think if people then if the effect of talking about ultra processed foods is just to scare people 
and turn them off and to think, oh, my God, my food is full of killer ingredients that are giving me cancer. I think the effect of that is potentially people just switch off and think, well, there's just no point. Mm-hmm. What is the point of me trying to do something about this? I'm already struggling. I'm already worrying about whether I can pay my bills, about whether I can get enough food to get my children to eat properly. You know, it's just another thing to worry about. And does that have a good impact on people's health, on people's behavior? Probably not. You know, we even very simple messages are very difficult to get people to do. Uh, we know that Almost everybody knows the five-a-day message. It's the first thing people mention if you ask them about a healthy diet. Oh, yeah, I know I should eat more fruit and veg. I know I should try and get my five-a-day. Do people do it? No, they don't. About a third of people manage to get their five-a-day. So if we're thinking, you know, what are we all trying to get to? And I think whatever the disagreements we may have between different people with different views on ultra-processed foods, ultimately, we all want people to be healthier and we will want people to eat better. But I think... The debate and the issues that come up around ultra-processed foods can make that a very challenging thing to actually draw out. What are people supposed to do? Because I think if you take the very sort of hardline view on ultra-processed foods, that essentially means you have to cook everything from scratch. You have to buy artisanal sourdough bread. Um, You can't get any of your usual foods, you know, things like baked beans, fish fingers, they're all off the table. So I just think for a lot of people that's, a not affordable and b people don't have time to do that um so i think we have to look for solutions that take into account the evidence and also take into account what people can do what they can afford what they have time for and what they have the kind of you know if you if you're going to ask people to radically change all aspects of their diet there's going to be very few people up for that and it's probably going to be the people who are already eating okay who are already engaged if you want to move, shift people and try and do get them to do a few things better, make a few changes that are doable for them, then you need to make that easy. And, you know, setting this out as a, a complete sea change in how you're going to eat, very few people are going to be up for that. And it's probably not the people who really need it anyway. Yeah, definitely. It's It, it can be very overwhelming. Um, and obviously many of our listeners are dietitians and they will be facing patients in clinics and in, in hospital settings asking about UPFs and, and whether they need to cut them out. What would you say are the key messages that they should be advising their patients, especially given the lack of UK guidelines at this current moment in time? Well, I think if people are concerned about ultra processed foods, I think it, it's clear, you know, lots of ultra processed foods are are not healthy choices. And they're probably, as dietitians, things you're already suggesting your patients eat less of. So if it's all about the sort of HFSS foods, if it's about sort of sugary snacks, fatty fatty, uh, fatty pastries, all of those things that you're already suggesting that people eat less of, then, you know, you can say, yes, all lots of these things are ultra processed. It's a good idea to eat less of them. But do you have to cut out things that are safe? that fit within the Eat Well Guide? Do you have to cut out breakfast cereal? Do you have to cut out bread that you buy from the supermarket? No, I think people can come back to come back to what they know about evidence-based nutrition. And we know that, you know, people need to include things like whole grains, pulses in their diet. There's good evidence that supports that people need to include those things in their diet. And I think we don't really have the evidence to say that if those things are processed, they're, they, they're things you have to exclude from your diet. Um, so I think you can reassure people that they can include those things that make it a little bit quicker and easier to get a meal on the table. 
but you know be aware of the things that we're already advised to eat less of the high fat the high sugar um things and you know if people can do a bit more cooking great um mm-hmm. if you can find a way to fit that in then that's all to the good um but cutting things out just because they're processed i think that just doesn't sit with the evidence that we have at the moment mm-hmm. okay and, and just going back to that so the eat well guide it's you know the dietitians nutritionists staple we always refer back to it because it it just does what it says on the tin it, it explains exactly you know uh, you know what we need to constitute a, a balanced healthy diet but how would you respond to someone that said, you know, why are UPFs in the Eat Well Guide? Um, how do you kind of balance that with some of the evidence coming out that UPFs are linked with poor health out- outcomes? Bridget, what would you kind of say to that? Well, I suppose when you look on the Eat Well Guide, it's things like you can see sliced bread, you can see breakfast cereal, you can see maybe tin beans, things like that that are included. Um, And I suppose that when we're talking about research on ultra processed foods, we're talking about ultra processed foods as a category, which includes a vast array of different kinds of foods, many of which are going to be high in fat, salt and sugar. So the foods that you see on the Eat Well Guide, it's not that someone's doing a study and saying that sliced bread specifically is bad or that baked beans are bad or that breakfast cereal is bad. It's that they are looking at an enormous category of different foods that are all considered ultra processed because of how they're made and how they're marketed and so forth. Mm. So I think it's separating out the the category of EPF versus the individual foods and what we know about those foods and their nutrient content and why they can be a, a, a part of a healthy balanced diet. Thank you. I'm sure that will help many of, you know, dietitians and anyone speaking to patients kind of explain that because it, it can be very complicated to break that down. So thank you. Uh, that was, that was excellent. And Dwayne, coming back to you then. So, Do you believe that UPS have a place as part of a healthy, balanced diet? I think we've started by looking at that most UPFs are off the bit of the Eat Well Guide that we've been told to eat less of. That little segment has been moved to the side of the cakes, the biscuits, and confectionery. I think sort of if we're going to categorise, and this is where we sort of the bluntness of the tool is worth debating. Bread, for example, that's a place in a healthy diet. Would recommend people to have a whole grain bread if possible. And there's a higher fiber or one with bits or seeds in as, as possible. That'll still be classified as also processed. You know, so that has a place in a healthy diet. We can talk about things like soups and, and sauces. You know, that can have a place in a healthy diet because if you're using a, a ready-made tomato-based pasta sauce, that'll be ultra-processed. But if you're using a way to then supplement with extra fresh bread, that could be healthy. I could be controversial here and go, well, a pot noodle, that's ultra-processed. Eating on its own, it's not a great thing to eat. Most dietitians, most nutritionists would agree. But you could use that and put frozen vegetables in there and produce what you could cheekily call the student ramen. And that could almost be a healthy meal because you bulked it out to, with vegetables and other healthy foods. You know, I think although technically it's an ingredient more than an ultra-processed food, something like a stock cube. Yeah, that is something that can actually be a gateway product. I use drug terminology deliberately there to help people eat more fresh or frozen vegetables. Yeah, if you look down something like bacon, oh, smoky bakes, and you know that's yeah, that's got nitrates and everything. Really bad on healthy food. But if you use a small amount of that or something like lardons to make a um, carbonara sauce with mushrooms and vegetables as well as the tagliatelle, you're using a powerful flavour to get people to eat other healthy stuff. So as a bulk, apart from possibly some things like breads and cereals, along with the higher fiber versions, 
not a bulk part of a healthy diet, but we need to recognize that some of these powerful flavors have got historical base in our diet, and we probably need to use them as small, powerful flavors rather than eating a whole sort of gamut, which would be possibly less healthy. Yeah, so it's, it's more contextualized and nuanced, I'd say. Mm. And then, you know, it wouldn't be a dietetic debate without a controversial question. On, on the other side of the, the debate there, so for people saying that UPFs don't have a place in a healthy, balanced diet, can you kind of, um, are there other reasons for that? Can you kind of see that from that point of view as well? And is there ever going to be a future without UPFs? Um, I think sort of you've got to be careful because it comes from a voice of privilege to say that you can eat without ultra-processed mm-hmm. food, without a food system that's complicated. You know, we need to improve our food system. I'm not saying we don't. But, you know, unless we can go back to that 1970s ideal of the good life where we can actually live off our own gardens, which we know isn't realistic in most cities, you know, you know, it's spending a lot of time, a lot of labour in the cooking. We that game's going to debate about gender and the role in the household. You know, both males and females are going out to work now, but that the workload at home, that distribution of labour in the household, need to go equally back onto men, as in, in sort of heterosexual relationships and be more equally spread. If we're going to go that way, so we need a whole cultural shift, and people mm. will spend a lot more time over the food. Yeah, there are ways of getting around that. We need to encourage people to engage with cooking and fresh eating. Of course we do. But if the counter message is just eat real food, how? How do we get into cities? How do we store it? How do we get our system to work around that? Yeah, it'll take a whole shift away from urbanization to make that work and, and possibly less humans on the planet. But that's another topic and very controversial. Exactly. It's it's huge, huge topics we're talking about here. And it's not going to take, it's not going to be ever you know, an overnight thing. As just you said, it would have to be a huge societal shift to even talk about, you know, us removing such a huge contribution to our diet. And on that topic, there are kind of many clinical nutritional solutions that we rely on, such as feeds in farming and food fortification, um, even kind of oral, oral nutritional supplements that we, you know, that we support our patients with, are the fact that these are ultra processed an issue? Definitely, because if you look at people who, by choice would, or, or by clinical need, cannot consume cow's milk, they go onto a plant-based alternative. They may think they need to go for the organic version. They're not allowed to have it fortified at the moment because it's against the law. That's ridiculous. You know, we need to look at supporting people's nutritional health not putting them at risk because of this idea of minimally fortifying, clean labelling things. So fortification, we need more fortification in our food system. Yeah, If we go back to iodine in dairy milk, cow's milk, that's only because we give iodine to cows. You know, we're fortifying down the chain. You know, we forget these inconvenient issues when we want to talk about sort of this concept of real food versus ultra-processed. Yeah, we've got two areas in clinical nutrition. We've got where you need the sort of chew feeds or the supplement drinks. These are people with very poor appetites. So you need to concentrate down so you've got the nutrients, the vitamins, and minerals. So people could be nutritionally, nutrition needs could be met without, you know, overfacing them with large amounts of food. That needs formulation. Uh, the other side is sort of frail older adults, you know, with this debate about ultra-processed food, we're getting more and more cases of frail older adults going, well, I can't eat that because it's bad for me. 
The risk is they're going to have a fall and a fractured hip, which could put them in hospital with very adverse outcomes and possibly death. You know, we need to have a sensible debate that foods that they can open, they can prepare, they can eat and enjoy, we forget the enjoy word, might keep them living independently, keep their mental health going and keep them nourished. It may not be this perfect, healthy, real food diet, but for some old adults, that's a lifeline that keeps them independent. And this debate can miss those people who are not careful. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. So how about the narrative then? So the messaging surrounding UPFs. Obviously, we've spoken about the fact that it needs to change, but could there be unintended consequences of communicating that UPFs need to be reduced from our diet? Dwayne, let's come to you on this first. I think the best example I've just talked about is that older adult, that older frail adult yeah. who is struggling to eat, or the, or somebody who's got had a stroke or, or has dental issues who can't chew. You know, ultra processed foods because their texture changes are vital. Um, I think sort of the nuance bit of the question. I think Bridget said it brilliantly earlier. If this message simply just encourages people to eat a few less beef burgers, it's fine. The problem is we're seeing in possibly some of our more vulnerable members of our society, it's adversely affecting them. So we need to focus on what the key issues are rather than putting fear amongst people who are already vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And Bridget, is reducing UPS realistic? Um, I know you've touched on previously the fact that you know it's a cost of living crisis, which is making recommendations to reduce UPFs harder than, than ever before. But what would you suggest are more helpful, healthy recommendations? Do you have any sort of practical advice that our listeners could take away from today's conversation? I guess it's finding the the healthy options within foods that are processed. And I think dietitians can play a great role in, in helping people navigate that. So things like Dwayne's already mentioned, like frozen vegetables are so quick and easy, so cheap, canned canned foods, whether that's baked beans or maybe kind of chickpeas, those things that you can just really easily chuck in a meal. Um, and they're a really healthy addition, cheap, easy. They sit in your cupboard. They don't go off. So I think um, helping people navigate the, the the sort of minefield that is processed foods, not just ultra processed, but processed foods more generally to find healthy options, because we know people already think that healthy eating is expensive and difficult. So we don't want to make it sound even more expensive and even more difficult than people already think it is. We need to make it easier. We need to try and make uh, make it feel doable, something that you can fit in with your life. Um so I think helping people find process options that make life easier uh, and make help people put quick, healthy meals together is something that dietitians can be a great sort of force for good on. Brilliant. Wayne, obviously there are no uh, guidelines specifically around UPFs at the moment, but would including UPFs in the guidelines in the UK help people to make better choices? I think if it's clear on what the main issues are, um, but then again, we could argue, well, the main issues are pastries, biscuits, cakes, confectionery, which if you look at, you know, that's a main of baked goods, I think, in, in the food um, sort of surveys. That's a main issue, as well as processed meats. And you get that, and some of the processed vegetables type things, which, you know, you're like, hmm, okay. If that's the main problem, they're already in the guidelines as things we should eat less of. Would saying they're ultra-processed just confuse the issue? Um, 
I'd probably go for the other aspects of where the Nova classification came from in Brazil is encouraging and enabling people to engage with fresher, more minerally processed foods and focus on the positive, focus on how they can be prepared, focus on in working with communities. And, and there's some great work in the food strategy in Birmingham as a, as a council, um, their, their food innovation strategy or the system strategy, sorry, and um, working with that to try and get communities to engage with food. So food where there's low income, you can get communities trying foods, setting up businesses, set up healthier food availability, circular food economies, and focusing on that element and then helping people to eat healthier foods and use that to displace the foods which are, could be classified as ultra-processed if they came to guidelines, but they're already on the margins of the guidelines anyway as things we should eat less of. So we need to enable better, healthier food behaviours rather than saying what we shouldn't do. Okay. And Bridget, are there examples of other countries where UPF guidelines have been successful? I find this really interesting, actually, seeing how we can learn by example. Yeah, there are a few other countries who include ultra-processed foods within their guidelines. So uh, Brazil is one, Israel is another. Also, France have targets around reducing ultra-processed foods. It's probably a bit early to say in terms of measuring success and, and how exactly you do that, perhaps in terms of looking at health outcomes. I mean, it's a, it's a really tricky one because it's always difficult to pin down if health if health come health outcomes improve then you know what what's driving that but i think it's definitely one to watch an interesting um one that we saw come out earlier this year was new guidelines from the nordic nutrition um uh, association so the countries in the nordic area work together sweden denmark norway and finland to pool their expertise and they put out every 10 years new uh, nutritional guidelines they came out earlier this year and they didn't reference specifically ultra processed foods, but they did highlight that processed foods that are high in fat, salt and sugar should be a target for um, to reduce. And so, I mean, as Dwayne's already said, in some ways, you know, those foods are already on our uh, on our radar and have been for, for for many years as things to reduce. But it may be that referencing processing might help people identify them. You know, people, it might be a shortcut to identifying particular kinds of food like the baked goods and the biscuits and so forth. Um, so it's an interesting one to watch. And I think there are a number of countries that have put um, ultra processed foods within their guidelines. But as Dwayne said as well, they've also highlighted sort of more behavioral things like eating together, cooking and so forth. And it might be that. It, actually, those things might be more important than focusing on the the ultra processed foods category itself. Really interesting. So let's just go to you uh, one last time, Bridget, as we as we round up this episode. And Dwayne, I'll be coming to you next. Um, if you could leave listeners with one piece of advice or you know takeaway surrounding ultra processed foods, what would that be? Well, I think given that your listeners are dietitians and people who are already um, well-versed in the area of nutrition and health and the evidence base for that. I think it's that piece about helping people work out how to make healthy eating easier. And I think that's probably a case-by-case -case conversation to have with patients and clients, but it could be identifying particular kinds of processed foods or, or unprocessed foods that make it easy to make healthy meals for yourself, your family, people that you care for. Um, and I think that expert guidance to help people and to reassure them as well, because these debates can be really scary sometimes, um, to reassure people, point them in the right direction and help them make those 
practical everyday choices that we all have to make to try and make you know healthy eating a reality for people. Right, and Dwayne? I think, you know, we focus on the negative too much in nutrition. We need to focus on how we can enjoy the positive. So my message is, yes, we can recognise, we can broadly agree on what for most people needs individualising, we've talked about that, should be eating less of, but how do we make it more accessible, affordable, fun and enjoyable to enjoy a healthier diet and getting variety in there without increasing the burden of time in the kitchen and washing up because no one likes washing up. So it's actually making healthy food fun and accessible. And that's what we need to focus on. The the argument about whether a fish finger is good or bad or what sort of whether a bread's ultra-processed or not, that's not helpful. Yeah, that can go in the background. We need to focus on helping people enjoy eating well. Thank you. What a great note to finish the episode on. A big thank you to Bridget and Dwayne for coming onto the podcast today. It was great to explore this area. And a huge thank you, as always, to Nuoutra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode, I'd love it if you shared this episode with a friend or colleague who you think would find it interesting. Our next episode of the Dietitian Cafe will be out soon. But in the meantime, you can check out our previous episodes or head over to our RD2B Dietitian Cafe podcast, where once a month our student dietitian host discusses the world of dietetics with a range of guests, all aimed at aspiring dietitians. Thank you for joining us at the Dietitian Cafe. See you next time.